If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the best-selling fiction writer Kate Moss. Her new historical novel is The City of Tears, the latest in her Burning Chambers series. The book explores the fate of two families against the historical backdrop of the French Wars of Religion, a bitter period of unrest that resulted in massacre and exile for many. Kate talks about the balancing act of weaving historical research with good storytelling, and how she takes readers into the streets of Paris and Amsterdam in the 16th century. Putting the questions to Kate was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Thanks so much, Kate, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about The City of Tears, which is your latest historical novel and the second in a quartet of historical fiction that spans 300 years and eventually across across continents. And before we go into some of the detail and the events in this book, Can we situate our listeners a little bit in terms of the span of history you're writing about and the story that begins in The Burning Chambers? Yes, it's, um, as you say, it's a quartet of books, although each novel is written so that you can enjoy it on its own. You don't have to have read the ones coming up before it. But my idea for the book was uh, to start at the very beginning of the Wars of Religion in France, which started on the 1st of March, 1562, and to follow the fortunes of two families, one Catholic, one Protestant, if you like, it's a Romeo and Juliet story, uh, from the beginning of the Huguenot diaspora in France uh, to 1862 in Franschhoek in South Africa, where a handful of 
refugees, Huguenot refugees, had fled after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1688 uh, to the Cape to make a new home there. And that was my image, that it would be 300 years of history, a fuse that lasts 300 years. It would take in the great sweep of history of the Reformation in Europe, in France, and Holland as it then was, and England as it then was. And then in book three, we'll be going to Tenerife in the Canary Islands and landing in the Cape of Good Hope. And book four will be set all in Stellenbosch, Franschuk, um, and Drakenstein in South Africa. So it's it's a big, epic adventure story, but set with imaginary characters against the backdrop of real history. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's it's a fascinating scope, a fascinating span. Um, and we open in the City of Tears um, in the mid sixteenth century. Um, can you what can you tell us about your your characters? That they're fictional. Uh, Peter and Minou, who we meet uh, first, and many readers might already be familiar with. Uh, the hero, if you like, of the early books is Minou Joubert. Um, I always call her a hero because for me, the hero is the protagonist of a story, regardless of whether they're a woman or a man. Um, and she, in The Burning Chambers, meets a Protestant boy, a Huguenot boy, Piet, who is part French and part Dutch. And in proper adventure story writing, of course, they fall in love and they are separated. And it is a story of forbidden love and love across the religious divide. Uh, But they do get together and they manage to uh, stay safe and they marry and have a family. And at the end of The Burning Chambers, uh, we we finish seeing them with their family around them. The City of Tears starts with them in their lands in Languedoc, in the southwest of France, deciding whether they should go to Paris for the royal wedding. Uh, The royal wedding is between Henry of Navarre, the uh, most royal of the Huguenots, and Marguerite de Valois, who is the daughter of Catherine de' Medici, the sister of the king, King Charles, who is a weak and inadequate king. Also in the background is the powerful Guise family, Henry of Guise, who is alleged to have been Marguerite's lover, and also the leader of what uh, were known as the war Huguenots, Coligny, Admiral de Coligny, who is also at court. And it's very important because the marriage has been brokered between the two mothers, Catherine de Medici and Jeanne d'Albret, the Queen of Navarre, to bring peace to France. There have been three successive wars and uneasy pieces uh, between 1562 and 1572. And this marriage is the marriage that will save France from herself, actually, because it's a religious civil war. And as we know, religious war is never about faith. It's always about power and influence and domination. And anyone who knows their history will be shrieking at the book to Minou and Pete, don't go to Paris. (laughs) Whatever you do, do not go to Paris because, of course, the most notorious engagement of the wars of religion, and there were eight, some say nine, wars of religion over a period of time uh, between 1562 and 1594. And um, But the one that everybody knows is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which happened, began in the early hours of the 24th of August in Paris, where some, we, we don't know how many, but maybe as many as 3,000 people were slaughtered. The mob became out of control. And then in the weeks that followed, there were copycat massacres, the length and breadth of France, including in Toulouse in the south, where possibly as many as 70,000 people died. And it's it's just the most extraordinary turning point of French history and actually of European history. So that's where I start the novel. Uh, and I'm not giving anything too much away to say that they do go <laughs> uh, to Paris. And it was very strange when I was writing it because 
I do all the historical research, I know the history, and then I set my imaginary characters free to play in front of it, if you like. So when I was writing those scenes, I didn't know who was going to go of the family to Paris, and I didn't know who was going to make it out alive, if anybody. Uh, you know, it's that's the extraordinary thing about writing historical fiction, that you can slip between the gaps of what we know and what we can imagine. So they do go to Paris uh, for the royal wedding. They witness the royal wedding. And then, of course, and that's on the 18th of August, and then a few days later, the mob is unleashed. And still, and we will never know who gave the order for the massacre to begin. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's an event that, as you say, many readers might know about, and the tension of that really does shimmer throughout the whole the whole novel. Um, and how how do you go about? Um, the, you obviously do a phenomenal amount of research. How do you go about then then setting the scene and taking um, those readers into the streets of Paris over those few days and building that tension? What's that process like? Well, it well, firstly, it's it's so much fun. <laughs> if you love history, which I do, um, and you read history both in its fictional form, but also it's you know it's uh, the nonfiction historians writing uh, particular biographies or histories or you know whatever. It's so much fun to deep dive into um, periods of history that you know something about, but not in any great depth. The key thing I think with historical fiction is this that my job is to tell a gripping story. I'm a storyteller. I'm an adventure writer. Uh, the City of Tears has the many attributes of a thriller. Um, it is a lost child story. It's a missing child story. Um, and so all of those things are what have to be at the forefront of the story. So the research must be gently worn in the background so that the reader feels completely immersed in the streets of 16th century Paris, which of course are actually the medieval streets of Paris at that stage. And they feel at home and they feel that they can trust what they're reading so that their emotions can be engaged by the characters. Because where historical fiction is so powerful is that people are removed from reading something objectively about a massacre to rooting for the characters they've come to love, one hopes, and indeed the characters they've come to fear in this particular situation. So I spend a huge amount of time after my book research, as I call it, uh, when I've been in archives and in museums and in art galleries, reading all the history I can lay my hands on, you know, American, English, French, German, you know, whatever it is of the period. But once I've done that, it's about walking the streets. Because the thing that brings it to life, I think, is knowing that actually Paris in 1572, you could walk from one set of walls in the West to the other set of walls at the Bastille in the East, and it would take you about 20 minutes. So that it was small. It was the biggest European city, but it was so small. Those things make a difference because then you understand how it was possible for every gate to be shut, for chains to be dragged across streets to bar them and basically trap people inside and massacre so many people. Because before you think, well, why didn't they, how, how didn't they get away? And of course, another thing that you forget is that even people who went to sea, that in those days, many people could not swim. So a lot of the people who died drowned were driven into the Seine and drowned in the Seine. So it, for me, what is important is the texture of life. What do the clothes feel like that the women wear? Do the men have beards and moustaches or are they clean shaven? How do you tell the difference in the street between a Huguenot and a Catholic? And of course, actually, that is their clothing marks them out. The, the Huguenots are in quite austere black with a 
sometimes a trim of white ruff and cuffs. Uh, the Catholics tend to be much more gaudy and decorated. And the court is seen as quite a decadent court, quite a sort of corrupt court. And so there's a great deal of, uh, you know, there are monkeys as pets, there are jewels, the men have very long hair. So all of these things are what I feel for myself as a researcher. And then I hope for my readers bring the world that Minou and Pete and her daughter Marta um, and that little Jean-Jacques and all of the family and indeed their enemies walk through to life, that you can picture them in your minds walking those streets, whether it's the Rue de Louvre or whether it's standing outside Notre Dame or Saint-Chapelle, any of these places, you see it through their eyes and how they would have felt at the time. Absolutely. Um, it's so vivid. And I wanted to ask about um, the City of Tears. The title refers not not to not to Paris, but to Amsterdam, where another large part of your novel takes place. Uh, and can you take us into your research in that city in particular, and perhaps the differences in religious toleration in the period that you're looking at? Yes, it was fascinating to um, be able to immerse myself in the character of two completely different um, capital cities, if you like. Although Amsterdam wasn't really the capital city. The Netherlands was yet to come and, and it was independent states at this stage. Um, and Amsterdam in the centre of Holland was the one Catholic city holding out. Whereas, of course, Holland alongside England, as it then was, uh, were the two great Protestant states at that moment. And my family flee, those who survived the massacre flee, as so many uh, Huguenot refugees did to Amsterdam. And they were welcomed. This is a, a wonderful story to be able to tell, I would say, particularly in these times, perhaps, that Holland, the little Holland, and then Netherlands, as it will become in the next century, the golden age, will become a world power. Tiny little Netherlands will become a world power. And partly the reason they do is because they accept the refugees in. And the refugees arrive with their skills. Uh, you know, this wasn't a term that was used then, but essentially Huguenots were in many ways middle-class people. They were had high literacy rates. They were doctors. They were bookbinders. They were glassmakers. They were lace makers. They were engineers. They, you know, they did all of these kind of important uh, roles. And of course, the Netherlands, as it would become Holland, uh, was a mercantile state. It was a pragmatic state. So although it was Protestant and it was trying to free itself from Spanish rule, the Catholic Spanish rule, actually what really ruled in Holland was commerce and common sense. And so my family arrive in Amsterdam and it is as different from Carcassonne and Toulouse in the south and indeed Paris in the north as a city could possibly be. Amsterdam at that stage is even tinier you know, many people will have been to Amsterdam and they will imagine the beautiful rings of canals, you know, the Herengrat and Prinsgrat, all of this. But actually, um, Singel was the moat and everything in between it was Amsterdam and everything that is now there, the museum's quarter, all of the, you know, the south part of Amsterdam was fields. Uh, the area called Jordan, which many of us feel is probably comes from the Huguenot refugees. It probably meant Jardin, uh, garden, uh, where many of them settled outside the walls, uh, which is now the swankier shopping area. Again, these were fields and all of this. Now, I was lucky enough to be given um, a writing fellowship by the Dutch Literature Foundation in 2019, which meant that I could spend a month living in Amsterdam. 
And it's the first time in my grown-up life where I have been completely on my own. Um, I'm a carer. Um, I have brought up children. I have a family. I live in a house where people come and go and there are dishwashers and the bins to put out, all of these things. But there I had a month of walking the city and just walking, walking, round and round, uh, being in the Amsterdam Museum, speaking to Dutch historians, learning all about that very forgotten period of Dutch history uh, called the alteration, when in the space of a day after 40 years, uh, the Catholics relinquished power of Amsterdam and left on ships that took them out to sea. And the Huguenots, uh, the, the Protestants, um, some Huguenots them, but obviously the Dutch Protestants took over. And again, it's a glorious piece of historical research because nobody died, not a single person died, which in this very bloody century is extraordinary. But I did need to talk to Dutch historians because the alteration and the satisfaction, as it was called, and the way that Dutch history turned then in the 1570s and 80s is very distinct and very, very little known, even by a lot of Dutch people who start to learn their history um, about the golden age. And that did take quite a lot of research, but it was fantastic. And I was enormously helped by the Amsterdam Museum, who were uh, brilliant and very patient with my questions. And what I hope I've done is put Amsterdam of 1572 and the 1580s on the page in a way that is true to the life that would have been lived then. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... Of course, there have been books for a long time, but this is the moment in the Reformation where there is an explosion of literacy and more and more people are able to read. And one of the reasons so many women were attracted to Protestantism and Huguenotism, which is really just the French word for the Protestants of the time, is that within that area, women wrote as well. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Yes, that, that, that ability to walk around somewhere and get to know it so well and be so immersed. It sounds wonderful. And your figure, Minu, she, she does this as well. She walks a lot. She, she, she writes. She keeps a, a journal. Um, and I wonder, in constructing, as you say, middle class people who are at the foreground of your novel, there are obviously historical figures there who are real, who are royals or dukes or things. How do you go about constructing the middle class day to day? And what kind of sources are there available to look at that? It's a really great question. And it's such an important question, because regrettably in history, um, there is often an enormous amount, sometimes an exclusive amount of attention on a tiny percentage of people. It's understandable. Uh, but particularly in the 16th century, you could sometimes be forgiven for thinking there were no normal women at all, that the only women that existed were queens and mistresses of generals and duchies and, and you know, popes, uh, you know, all of these sorts of people. But what I'm interested in is putting unheard and underheard women's stories at the heart of history, because we were all there too. And we were always there and playing a crucial role in the world as it was developing and being lived. And I suppose for me, therefore, although, of course, the people at the court, the people at the top of the religious institutions, the people at the top of the military institutions, they are the people whose decisions often impact all of our lives. But I'm more interested in the impact on our lives, uh, the ordinary people, than I am in those people that I feel sometimes, you know, are overrepresented in history. And, and you know, it's a cliche to say history is written by the victors, but it's a cliche because it's true, but it's also sometimes forgotten that history is written with an agenda. And often the agenda is that women didn't do anything. They were all inside doing nothing, and it was just men. But when you think in this period of time that uh, the men in France had been away at war on and off for a generation... So who do we think were opening the bookshops? Who do we think were binding the books? Who do we think were baking the bread? Who do we think were teaching the children to read? You know, women were equal partners in their, their family households. So that is very, very important to me. But as you say, it therefore takes more research. But you can find it when you look, um, for example, at wills. Wills were a really good way of discovering how uh, normal households ran. So when you go to uh, into archives and you can see that a mother who has died has left her daughter her best shoes and a bag of salt. Uh, you can see the things that people bequeath. You can see with the Huguenot consistories, which were kind of like their courts in a way. You can see that the way that um, men were made to marry women that they had, in the old-fashioned phrase, got into trouble. Uh, you see how people are punished for things that they've done, misdemeanors or whatever. And slowly you build up um, a sense of life as it was lived on the ground. Also, in this period, you have books. You know, of course, there have been books for a long time, but this is the moment in the Reformation where there is an explosion of literacy and more and more people are able to read. And one of the reasons so many women were attracted to Protestantism and Huguenotism, which is really just the French word for the Protestants um, of the time, is that 
within that area, women wrote as well. There were many women writing devotional tracts in that time. And so we can read uh, books of the time, contemporary books, and that makes a difference. And finally, of course, it's by looking at paintings, uh, because particularly in Holland in this period, there are many, many paintings of middle-class families, and you can see what they are wearing. You can see what they are eating. And they stand in stark contrast to the glamorous and lavish photos or uh, paintings of people such as Catherine de' Medici. And it, of course, we're about to have, you know, Elizabeth I um, is there in England um, in those e extraordinary court clothes. Nobody normally wore clothes like that. Of course they didn't. They wouldn't be able to get through a door. Um, so it's it's painstaking. But I think all historical novelists must be detectives. And I think we must all also be archaeologists. So it's always looking for the city beneath your feet and looking for the, the us of then, if you mm -hmm. like, to put on the page. Okay, so, so you, you're clearly, you've done that detective work, you've done that archaeology work. Can you talk a bit more about the process of then, I guess, sifting through that, passing that down a bit for the reader? Because I guess there must be so, you must find some gems that I guess just can't make it into your work, however much you would want them to. Well, I'm talking to you at the moment, and even though we're, we're not on camera, uh, my laptop and the microphone is on a, a uh, two box files, one purple and one green, good suffragette colours, um, and they are full of notes. I mean, hundreds of thousands of words of notes of research. Um, a tiny fraction, an inch worth of it, is probably in the book. Because research only matters if it feeds your story. Research matters so that your reader feels that they can relax into your book and trust it to enjoy the story. So the minute the research is banging you on the head, saying, look at me, look how much research I've done, then you as a novelist have failed. Um, it's very, very tough. And I'm sure there's always, there's a little bit more in there than there needs to be, because it's, all historical writers will say this, that I love the research and I love the knowledge and I want to share it. But every time you feel it's getting in the way, you have to get rid of it. So that's really the key. You say, why do I need to know what the skirt look, you know, what Mina is wearing and her daughter Marta is wearing. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because can she run in it? Would it come untied? What's she got on her feet? Would, is it possible to run in the shoes she's got on her feet or would, are they pieces of wood held on with a strap? Um, the men, if you're going to have somebody mistaken for somebody else, well, if they're all clean shaven, that's a lot harder than if everybody's got a beard and the roughs are very high and everybody has a low hat. So for me, it's about that, that every piece of research has to either feel the world, it has to feed the world of the novel or feed the story. And so when you're editing, you go through and you go, oh, I love that piece of information, but has it got a place in this, this story on this page? And if it hasn't, on goes the red pen and it has to go, um, you know, and so, and, and that's always heartbreaking, but there, it's never lost because every single piece of information that you learn does nourish the story somewhere mm. along the line. So you just have to know that it's there somewhere. Every little bit has helped as mm. the slogan goes. <laughs> And it's obviously a, a region, um, well, the, the, the French region is obviously one you've, you've written about copiously before. Many people will have read uh, Labyrinth and the, the trilogy there. Um, how did you first come to this history and, and southwest France? What's the connection there for you? 
extraordinary piece of luck and happenstance, actually. Um, in 1989, um, my wonderful mother-in-law who lives with us, who is 90 uh, now, um, she retired from teaching and my husband had lived in Paris and we thought we would pool our very limited resources and try and buy a little bolt hole in France. And my mother-in-law had a friend who had a friend who had a friend um, who was twinned with an estate agent in a city called Carcassonne in the southwest of France, which I had never heard of. But yet... Uh, they went and they bought a tiny little house, the same little house that we've got uh, still in the shadow of the medieval city walls in 1989. And I went there for the first time later that year. And I walked through the modern town, the Bastide, which is where Minou and her father, Bernard Joubert, have their bookshop um, in, in the burning chambers. And it, I got to the Pont Vieux, which is over the uh, River Aude. And I saw for the first time the medieval citadel 52 towers and turrets ahead on the hill on the other side of the river. And that was it. It was a coup de foudre. I just fell head over heels in love. And it, there was no question of writing about it at the time, but it was more, um, I just thought, oh, I belong here. It was a really visceral feeling. And out of that, I just wanted to read and learn everything about the history of the region. And it's a place and this is what's reflected in my books, where I think that mystery and history and landscape meet. They are the three pillars of what makes Languedoc so exceptional. And the more I read, the more I became enamoured of the landscape and the very bloody history of these beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And little by little, I started to hear what I always call the whispering in the landscape, which is characters, a story somewhere out of sight, just waiting for me. And out of that, finally, a long time later, came the novel Labyrinth, which is set between 1209 and 1244 in the modern day. And it's one of the reasons with the Burning Chambers Quartet that I wanted to go back to Carcassonne, that once I had the idea for this 300-year story that starts in the graveyard in Franchuk in 1862 and finishes in the graveyard in Franchuk in 1862, but it's, of course, why I wanted to go back to Carcassonne, because immediately I thought, well, I must start uh, my novel, sequence of novels about the wars of religion back in my beloved Carcassonne, because I would like to know what Carcassonne was like in 1562 and 1572. And that's always it for me. It's always like um, every story is spurred on by investigation, uh, by the hunt for knowledge uh, about a place that I love or am intrigued by. Um, and it's like building a stage set. And once the stage set is built, the characters come. It's how it works. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, the next volume will take readers to Tenerife. Uh, how much can you say about that? Have you, have you done the research yet? Or is it a little bit affected by everything the world is experiencing right now? Uh, it is an extraordinary thing. Um, but again, a, a, a great piece of luck that this time last year, I made the decision, even though I didn't have very much time and it felt very wasteful amount of money, to go to Tenerife for a week and then to South Africa for a week. Um, and and I thought this is this is daft. You know, you need to go later in the year when you've got more time and you can really embed yourself in the places and the landscape and the research. But I went. You know, we went on a family holiday to Tenerife in January, and then my husband and I went to Franchuk, which is a town I know well and have been there several times um, for research, uh, as well as to be part of the book festival there. And we did it. 
And thank goodness I did, because I have been able to start book three and develop on that story. And I would not, I would have found it very hard to start without having done the research I did last year. Um, discerning listeners will notice that there is a wine theme here. Um, and that indeed is true, because one of the things that intrigued me about the Huguenots that arrived in the Cape is that they were partly invited by the governor of the Cape um, at the time, the Dutch East India Company, to go and plant vines. And although there was uh, a, a small South African wine industry in the 17th century, um, the arrival of the Huguenots was the thing that really started to boost it. And it was deliberate to go and plant vines so that wine could be made in South Africa uh, to be shipped to their, as they were called then, of course, colonies in the Far East. Now, I then, doing a piece of research, noticed that a lot of the people who sailed uh, from Amsterdam on the ships from Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Ghent, uh, did stop in the Canary Islands. And I love the Canary Islands. And they then discovered that Tenerife was one of the biggest wine producers in the 17th century. Uh, many of the wines mentioned in Shakespeare are Tenerife wines. Um, and it still is what, you know, the French would call an appellation contrôlée. Um, they still have five distinct wine regions. So I was there doing that research. And then, of course, arriving at uh, the end of book three will arrive finally in the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and that is now the area that we think of the Winelands, of course. And I will be going to Stellenbosch, to Paul, to Drachenstein, and finally into Franschuk itself. Uh, so normally this would be the best research because I would simply be wine tasting. But obviously I'm doing it all now from my desk in Sussex, <laughs> which is slightly different and less fun. <laughs> well, here's hoping at some point in the future there can be some more research twinned with. And is there anything else you'd like to tell readers about, about the City of Tears while they can... Uh, so one of the things um, that I wanted to do with The City of Tears, it's a heartbreaking story. It is a story of a lost child. It's a story of being a refugee, being forced to flee. But it is, I hope for people, a, a thriller and very exciting. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do on the back of it, you know, times are tough for everybody at the moment, was do something more positive. And so we are launching, as part of the publication of The City of Tears, um, uh, a campaign uh, with the hashtag Women in History, uh, asking people to nominate a woman in history that inspires them, that they think should be better known, uh, that they just simply want to shout about, if you like, um, because I feel that we all need to celebrate. And there are many extraordinary people in history. In the City of Tears, I have two extraordinary women who are real, Catherine de Medici and Jeanne d'Albret, but I also have my imagined characters, and I asked various other authors uh, to recommend their uh, one woman that they would nominate. So Bernardine Evaristo uh, nominated Mary Seacole. Um, Lee Child uh, nominated the common ancestor. Ken Follett nominated Emma of Normandy. Uh, many extraordinary people um, from all over the world were nominated. So anybody listening who would like to join in, uh, it's happening mostly on social media with the hashtag Women in History but just nominate a woman that you would like to include. And we will be gathering them all up together and uh, publishing a gallery of these incredible women to celebrate right back in time on International Women's Day, the 8th of March uh, in 2021. Um, just to say that novels are great. They keep us company. They connect us. They join us together. But let's also raise a glass to the real extraordinary women out there in the world um, who have made all of our lives what they are today. That was Kate Moss. The City of Tears, the second novel in the series that began with the burning chambers, 
is published by Pan Macmillan and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about daily life in ancient Egypt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.